The Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten men with leprosy approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, Were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Healing stories are bittersweet, aren't they? Of course, we are grateful for all healing. And those of us who've experienced healing in extraordinary circumstances may be fundamentally changed by it. There was a man in my childhood congregation, for instance, who survived a serious car accident. And while he had a permanent limp as a result, he also had a changed temperament forever more joyful and generous of spirit than he'd been before. I imagine that it was a case of transformative gratitude, much like the Samaritan healed of his leprosy, who falls at Jesus' feet in our Gospel from Luke today. But dramatic instances of healing inevitably leave us wondering about all the illnesses and injuries that have no cure. Jesus asks, were not ten made clean, but the other nine, where are they? We might rightfully ask him, were not many more suffering from leprosy in Galilee and Samaria, not to mention Judea and elsewhere, But the others, Jesus, what about their pain, their exclusion, their hopelessness? How many faithful people over the ages have cried out to God for mercy, but have not had their afflictions removed? If Jesus is nothing more than a medical miracle worker, then he misses the mark on every occasion that a faith healing does not take place. It must be that healing stories in the Gospels are about more than physical restoration. And on this note, 
a biblical language lesson is in order. You might not be surprised. Jesus' final remark in our gospel today, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well, centers on the Greek verb sozo, to save. So some translations render that phrase, your faith has saved you. We've often spiritualized the notion of salvation to the extent that it no longer has any implications for earthly life. Are you saved has come to mean, are you among those whose eternal well-being is secure? But salvation in the biblical sense is inextricable from lived experience, incorporating the physical, emotional, social, and spiritual aspects of a person's life. In the case of the Samaritan healed of his leprosy, salvation is marked by physical health, social reintegration, right orientation toward God, and the irresistible impulse to give thanks and praise. Get up and go on your way, Jesus tells him. Your faith has saved you. More than a supernatural cure, healing refers to holistic wellness and peace. It's salvation in broad terms. So you don't need to be cleansed of leprosy to understand the Samaritan's grateful response to Jesus. Whatever it is that afflicts you, healing is any experience of spontaneous and unmitigated grace that breaks into your life to enable you to get up and go on your way. To begin again and again. Barbara Brown Taylor recalls being invited to speak at an event where the host provided her with the prompt, tell us what is saving your life now. She reflects, it was such a good question that I have made it a practice of asking others to answer it as I continue to answer it myself. Salvation is so much more than many of its proponents would have us believe. In the Bible, human beings experience God's salvation when peace ends war, when food follows famine, when health supplants sickness, and freedom trumps oppression. Salvation is a word for the divine spaciousness that comes to human beings in all the tight places where their lives are at risk, regardless of how they got there or whether they know God's name. Salvation is a word for the divine spaciousness that comes to human beings in all the tight places where their lives are at risk. So the question is, what is saving your life right now? I asked this question to a few dear friends this week and received the following responses shared with their permission. So there are many ways my body isn't working right now. Bad digestion, infertility, autoimmune issues. 
but my body is working well enough to get me out in the woods, to rock climb and to dance. The fact that multiple things can be true at once is saving my life right now. I think what's saving me right now are the moments when I feel pulled out of the rat race and reminded in a very clear way that I am more than what I do. Those moments happen when I'm out on a run, when I walk away from the pile of dishes on the counter and get on the floor with my babies instead, when I let myself sleep instead of getting up early to get a few things done around the house, when I take a full day off from work. I would say that the shift to fall foods, reminding us that we are part of the cycles of creation, cycles of change, cycles of death that leads to new life, is good and saving and making us well. My estranged grandfather is visiting for the first time in nine years. So the ability to restrain myself from expressing all the hurt and disappointment I feel is both saving and crushing me. And finally, if I didn't have communion right now, I would be drowning in my grief over losing my spouse. Instances of salvation are both large and small, both immediate and enduring, both simple and complex. Salvation is the place where pain meets grace, where God enters actual human life to share it with us and deliver us to the next place, the next moment, the next reality. It's where the devastation of the cross encounters the promise of the resurrection. Dear church, you know what's killing you. You're keenly aware of all the tight places where your life is at risk. But where is divine spaciousness making room for you to breathe and to hope? What reasons do you have to give thanks and praise to God, if even in a whisper? or a sigh. What is saving your life right now? The Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while, he refused. But later, he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, Yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says 
And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. When Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel returned from Selma, Alabama in 1965, having taken part in the famous march led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., someone asked him, did you find much time to pray when you were in Selma? Rabbi Heschel responded, I prayed with my feet. For people of faith engaged in the movement for civil rights, in other words, prayer was more than a private appeal to God. Marching for justice was also a form of prayer, and perhaps the most fitting kind of prayer for the moment at hand. Of course, the march for justice continues. Our alertness to the world's many injustices takes a toll. And we may wonder if God's dream for a world restored can ever be realized. For this reason, disciples in every generation need the kind of encouragement we hear in our gospel from Luke today. Jesus' parable about the need to pray always and not to lose heart. An unjust judge ignores the cries of a widow in his midst until she finally wears him down with her tenacity, and he grants her the justice she demands. It's an illustration of the old adage that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. But it's also a case for the faithfulness of God. If even an unjust judge will grant justice to a widow out of sheer exasperation, Jesus contends, How much more readily will God, who is fundamentally just, respond to your cries for justice? It follows that people of faith should be bold and persistent in prayer. Prayer that comes to full expression in our actions. All the while trusting that in time God's kingdom will come on earth as in heaven. I like to imagine Jesus' story as if it's being told in a series of icons that depict the widow calling the judge out repeatedly throughout his day. Imagine this with me. The first icon shows her outside his bedroom window waiting for him to wake up. The second shows her interrupting his breakfast. The next is a scene of her trailing behind him as he makes his way to the courtroom. Then a scene of her shouting him down as he tries to pass a different judgment, and so on. In spite of his utter lack of respect for the abundance of Jewish law protecting orphans and widows, the judge ultimately concedes. Why? He simply can't stand any more of the widow's badgering. 
What is it that motivates people to pursue justice with such single-mindedness and disregard for decorum? The widow clearly doesn't care what other people think of her. She has only one objective, and she intends to achieve it no matter what. Urgency certainly plays a role. The widow has no choice but to put herself out there. To borrow the words of one interpreter, the judge is her sole hope of securing justice, and persistence is her only recourse. This is also the case with historical movements for justice. Think of people occupying lunch counters in the South, sitting silently without being served until they're assailed with insults and blows and finally arrested for breaking segregation laws. Who would endure such mistreatment? Only those who believe public confrontation is the last course of action available to them. But urgency in and of itself cannot sustain a movement for justice. So in light of the inevitable resistance, how do you imagine proponents of justice over the years have managed to persist and not to lose heart? Fannie Lou Hamer was born the daughter of sharecroppers in Mississippi in 1917. Incensed by injustices she had experienced in her own life, as well as ongoing efforts to deny the vote to African Americans, she became a political organizer in 1961 and eventually rose to prominence in the civil rights movement. She struggled mightily for many years as a champion for political rights and particularly the right to representation in Mississippi's delegations to the Democratic National Convention. Predictably, Fannie Lou Hamer faced opposition at every turn. Yet she did not allow abuse and violence to derail her. Sometimes it seemed like to tell the truth today is to run the risk of being killed, she said. But if I fall, I'll fall five feet, four inches forward in the fight for freedom. I'm not backing off. She knew the justice of her cause. And no scheming, no shaming, no intimidation could stop her. Her resolve was rooted in a sense of dignity and purpose that could not be shaken. Dear church, dignity and purpose are the currency of our faith. Claimed by God in Christ, you are precious. And when you bring yourself to accept your own inherent value, your eyes are opened to the inherent value of others. But the struggle to uphold the dignity of marginalized people is guaranteed, guaranteed to run up against resistance. You have to be so secure in your own worth and belovedness, a colleague of mine reflected this week, because others won't grant it to you. You have to be so secure in your own worth and belovedness because others won't grant it to you. 
we're called to pray with our hands and our feet for the sake of God's justice, to be persistent and not to lose heart. But if our security comes from the approval of others, if we're most concerned with garnering esteem, then we will forever hedge our bets. If, on the other hand, we are secure in our worthiness, our status as beloved in God's sight, then we can be bold in demanding the abundant life that God intends for all of God's beloved, and especially the most vulnerable.